0: Romans chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning. And I want to start off with a, uh, an object lesson here. <clears throat> um, depending on, and actually this would be, be kind of interesting. So on a day like today, I can do things that are a bit different and be a little loose and try things out on a smaller group, okay? Someone tell me how many pages Romans takes up in your Bible. If you've got a physical Bible this morning, look at the page number for Romans 1, look at the page number for Romans 16, and see how many pages it takes up, okay? I'm guessing most Bibles are 20 to 30 pages, but we'll we'll see this morning. Let's see what kind of numbers we get this morning. 20 20 for Katrina. 12 for Jerry. That must not be a study Bible. Okay. 20 for Jim. Okay. Joseph, you still crunching the numbers over there? We're at 14. 14. Okay. Wow. So it's less than 20 in most Bibles. That's interesting.
1: 33.
0: 33. Okay. That must be a study Bible. All right. So no more than 40 probably in most Bibles for the book of Romans. Okay. Well, this is my primary exegetical commentary for the Book of Romans. This just covers the Book of Romans. It's uh, just under a 1,000 pages. It's by Doug Moo. Uh, this is the second edition of his exegetical commentary. It's about 950, 960 pages. Does that commentary, do you think, exhaust the Book of Romans? No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: A second exegetical commentary that I refer to for the Book of Romans is this one from the Baker series by Tom Schreiner. Let's see. His work cited is probably 100 pages. Uh, his is looks like just under 800 pages. With these two together, surely if you've got these on your shelf that cover the Book of Romans, over 1,500 pages, does that exhaust the Book of Romans? The Romans is just 20 pages, guys. I've got John Murray here, his commentary, an old one on Epistle to the Romans. Leon Morris to the Romans. Leon Morris here is about 600 pages, 550 or so. This is John MacArthur just on chapters 1 through 8. Okay. Um, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones just on chapter 12. S. Lewis Johnson, James Stiffler, Alva McLean, all these together, does that exhaust the 20 pages in your Bible of the book of Romans? No. What, so what are we saying about Scripture here? Because any other book, take uh, Homer in the Odyssey, or Homer's Iliad, okay, this ancient literature, take that for example, If there were this many commentaries on Homer and just one of his works, we would say, yeah, that pretty much turns over every stone, right? Uh, That pretty much covers it. But you're saying for the book of Romans, this many commentaries doesn't exhaust what's in there? What does that mean? What does that that say about Scripture? Scripture. <laughs> tells us every, tells us everything, shows us every single thing that we could ever see. God is bigger than we are. Okay. God's, God's word is just it's inexhaustible. hmm
1: God is infinite.
0: I understand him, and if we're saying this about the book of Romans, we could say that's true for all books of the Bible, right? I mean, if you have this many commentaries that go into this much detail on every book of the Bible, you're still saying, we can't see in our lifetime everything there is to see in God's word. Now that should kind of provoke you to study, huh? I mean, isn't that exciting? Uh, Scripture stands alone as the only book that exists that you just can't plumb the depths of. And these are not all my Romans commentaries. I've still got a couple more. Isn't that something? Yes, Jerry. No. But thanks for asking. <laughs> No, they are. They are. I, I haven't read through all of them. I, I use all of them. Not every week, not for every passage, but yeah, they get used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's look at Romans 15. And, and the reason I wanted to go through that this morning is because we're reading through a passage this morning that you read through and you say, I read through it once. I have exhausted the passage. That's kind of our temptation as we read through this little passage in Romans 15. Romans 15 verses... 20 to, we'll do 20 to 25. Someone want to read these verses for us? Who's got it? Go ahead, Jerry.
1: And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. As it is written, they who had no news of him shall see. They who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, I first enjoyed But now I'm going to
0: Jerusalem, serving the saints. Okay. Paul here is just talking about his plans, isn't he? Yet there is no depth that we can reach to getting all the application and understanding out of this passage that we could get. Because there's a lot to see. Uh, Just a brief thought on what we looked at last week. What was Paul... Um, Reiterating, establishing, boldly defending, and asserting in our passage last week. Um, Starting in verse 15, what was he asserting and just slightly defending? Good. He was reiterating the fact of his apostleship, saying that it was a gift. Look at verse 15. He understood that his life and his office, his role in the church was a gift, the grace that was given me from God, meaning that this is a gift. And he understood his whole life to be one of grace. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Does anybody happen to know what 1 Corinthians 15.10 says? It's the great resurrection passage. And Paul at the beginning is talking about uh, his proclaiming the gospel to the Corinthians and saying, Jesus appeared to him last of all as one untimely born. And then he goes on to say, it's just the next book over. You could flip on over there. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, this is one of those verses I count as my life verse in a few ways. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Just his whole life, his whole existence was of the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And for Paul, that meant he was an apostle, right? Not just a Christian, and in fact, we can go back even farther. Not just alive and breathing, which is a gift of God's grace, isn't it? We don't deserve breath in our lungs. Each moment we wake up and our heart's still beating, that's God's grace. But even further than that, those, who, those of us who have come to know the Lord... We're saved, that's a gift of grace. And for Paul, his life of apostleship was a gift of grace. And then in verse 16, back in Romans 15, verse 16, he called himself both a minister and a priest. Not only is he an apostle, he's a minister and he's a priest, and the Gentiles are his offering. He's bringing them before the Lord as his offering, that the Lord would be pleased with his work among the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles that he was reaching. And so Paul's desire was to reach these Gentiles, the people who didn't know God, people who were far from God, and his goal was to blaze new trails only. That was Paul's ministry, is he wanted to blaze a new trail everywhere he went. That was his desire. And that's what we see in our passage today down there starting at verse 20. But before we get to the new trails part, what does Paul say he aspired to do? What's priority number one? Preach the gospel, right? So not only did he desire to go to new places, but he desired to preach the gospel in new places. And I'm going to break these apart a little bit. He desired to preach the gospel. And as we consider the message of the gospel, let's walk through that and be refreshed. And this is a different presentation than than what I've done before. Looking at four elements when it comes to how we deliver the gospel, proclaim the gospel, share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to get your feedback and your answers, starting with our problem. What is humanity's problem that sets us up to hear the good news? Okay, in a word, right? It's sin. Okay, and how would we explain that or prove that from Scripture? Okay. Do you know where that is? Romans 3.23. Good. Romans 3.23. Anything else you want to throw in there? How about one more? Jeremiah 17. What does it say? The heart is more deceitful than anything else. And I'm desperately sick. we can All right. And there's... There are no qualifications on that statement either. When he says, the heart is desperately sick. It's deceitful above all else. He doesn't say, the heart of Gentiles.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Romans 1.
0: Yeah. Good. Yeah, Romans 1 is a great passage, uh, especially when you keep reading through chapter 2, chapter 3. It just leads in, all have sinned, right? There is there is no qualification on which humans have sinned. It's all human beings have sinned, Okay. Well, let's move from our problem now to, our, or to Christ's identity. Now we have to, That's the focus that we have to put on humans to start this out. Humans are fallen and in need of the gospel. But now let's shift our focus to who Christ is and what Christ has done. This is the who and the what, okay? Christ's identity. What would you tell somebody as you're sharing the good news? What would you tell somebody about Christ's identity? Which says? In the beginning was the Word, the
1: Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right,
0: so John 1.1, 1, 1, we have Christ being described as? God. Yep. Good. God himself. Is this a critical aspect of understanding the gospel?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. <clears throat> because what are you left with? If Christ isn't God, if Christ is just a creation of God or offspring of God, or somehow just an image bearer of God like we are, what does that do to the gospel? Makes it efficient, efficient. yeah. In what, what sense? How would you explain that to your neighbor? As you know, this is a very pertinent conversation with your neighbor, right? How would you explain that? All right, oh, good. Cannot
1: satisfy justice and purity of God and his wrath, his rightful wrath, against hmm. number one
0: of there. Okay, yeah, so Jerry said number one, we'd be dealing with a finite savior, and that's a problem because there is a limit then to what he could do. By definition, finite beings. Can't do all things. Finite beings can't offer infinite sacrifices, right? And Andy brings up God's wrath. Is God's wrath finite or infinite? Infinite. Yes. Yeah. So, there has to be an infinite sacrifice to match the infinite wrath of God against sin. Because our transgressions against a, an infinite God are transgressions that require an infinite punishment. Okay? Okay. And so Christ can satisfy that wrath because he is God himself. What other passages would you go to? Let's go outside of the book of John. What other passage can you think of that describes the deity of Christ? There are three chapter ones in the New Testament that are important for describing the deity of Christ. Yeah, good. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Okay. And these are really big passages. So, starting about verse 15 and following, and Hebrews 1, you'd say 1 to 4, describe the deity of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, as we think about Jesus being God Himself, what does that mean about uh, his, his nature? We already said infinite, but uh, what other words could we use to describe the nature of Jesus Christ? Holy. Holy? Pretty holy? Mostly holy? Kind of holy? infinitely holy you could also say perfectly holy right christ's nature is absolutely perfect and what did he do what was his work that reflected his perfection there are multiple answers to that question there's no one exact item okay There was an unblemished sacrifice going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was required that a lamb be unblemished. Think of the Passover lamb. Well, Christ is our Passover. Do you know where that's found in the New Testament where it says that explicitly? 1 Corinthians 5.7. 1 Corinthians 5.7. Okay, but before he died, what did he do? Yes. And then after he died, what did he do? Rose again. Okay. Wow. Hey, are we Christians this morning? (laughs) Oh my! What did he do after he died? He rose again. Okay. All right. All right. All right. And then what did he do? What did he do after he rose again? He ascended into heaven. Ascended. Which we often neglect. It is an important doctrine in the New Testament. Will someone hear the gospel and believe and understand, apart from knowing the ascension uh, details of Christ's ascension? Yeah, that's possible, okay? But it is important to throw that up there and to understand. He didn't just rise again, He ascended into heaven. And we already mentioned 1 Corinthians 5.7. What other passages can you think of that describe Christ's perfect work in dying, well, living, dying, rising again, ascending? What other passages? 2 5. 1. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Good. Kind of running out of space here. This was poorly planned. 5.21. Okay. And we can cap it there for the whiteboard, but we can list some more. What other other passages describe Christ's perfect life, perfect death, His resurrection, His ascension? 1 Peter 2.21. Yeah, 24 is key. He himself bore in his body our sins on the cross, right? And he quotes Isaiah 53 there, by his wounds you were healed. You were healed, he says. So Isaiah 53, talking about the death of Christ and the healing that would come from the death of Christ, is a spiritual healing, right? When Peter there uses Isaiah 53 to tell these believers in the past tense, you were healed, it's talking about your salvation. By his wounds, you have salvation. And just a footnote, you will come across in your life at some point some faith-healing people who will say that Jesus' death bought your physical wellness. That's not how Peter uses the verse there. Because they'll say, by, your, by his wounds, you're healed. By his wounds, you won't get the COVID. Yeah, you reject that, right? Okay. Any other passages to share? Let's let's clear one thing. What is it very important to understand about the resurrection? What what must a person believe about the resurrection in order to be saved? As is bodily resurrection as opposed to spiritual Good. Good. He didn't rise again as some sort of a immaterial spirit, but his body physically came from the, the grave the tomb. Yes, touch, touch, and feel my side. He interacted with his disciples. Because you'll, again, come across some liberal Christians who will say, well, um, you know, we can't super trust the Gospels. There's a lot of spiritual elements in that, not literal elements. You look for the spiritual stuff. And Miracles don't happen. Jesus' body stayed in the tomb like every other body that ever was put in a tomb. But there was some sort of interaction, some spiritual interaction that the disciples had with Jesus. And then they'll move on. Can you believe that about the resurrection and be born again? No. That is denying the power of God, isn't it? And the gospel, according to Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. They're, they're believing man-made philosophies and that's materialism. Yes, absolutely. All right, and then the fourth element, our response. Okay, so we understand our problem, who Christ is, what Christ has done. Now, what is man's response? What do we call man to do? Repent and believe. Good, okay. Repent and believe. I, I think that sums it up, doesn't it? So that means that they must clean up their act in faith, right? No. Oh, okay. All right, good. What does that mean? What does repent and believe mean? your mind. Yeah, repent. Is that word metanoia? Change your mind to have a change of mind about something? Yeah, it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Repent and believe. Where where you're putting your trust in Jesus. You're not trusting in yourselves, as Mike quoted Proverbs 3. You're no longer leaning on your own understanding. Right? But you lean on Christ. You put your trust in Christ. This is the message that uh, the apostles preached. Peter, you look at Peter at Pentecost. He calls to the uh, Jews who are gathered there, repent and believe in Jesus You see, in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, how did he sum up his ministry to Felix? He says, my ministry was to call men to repentance and that they would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That was his ministry. And so it's to lean on Jesus and to lean on, not your own understanding, but to believe the gospel. Okay? And in Romans 4, I'll give you the first cross-reference here. Romans 4, 1 through 5 is very critical. This belief is not a work. Believing in the gospel is not a work. Romans chapter 5 or chapter 4 makes that very clear in contrasting a works based system with Abraham. It says if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But he was not justified by works. And Romans 4 5, a very key verse. For the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. That's a good verse, isn't it? That sums it up, this point of the gospel message. For him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, not the godly, he justifies the ungodly. To him who believes that, Meaning, he's not trying to clean up himself before he comes to God. He's coming to God in his filth. And he's relying on God's grace. The one who comes to God in faith, relying on the grace of God to justify the ungodly. He's the one whose faith is credited as righteousness. What's an, another really key, big, important passage that talks about coming to God by faith and believing the gospel? Not by works, but by faith. Okay, we had Jerry sharing Galatians three. What verses? Pretty much
1: the
0: whole chapter. Okay. Well, we'll do three, ten. And I heard someone say Ephesians two. Yeah. What verses? Yeah, you guys know those ones, right? Ephesians two, eight and nine. It's good to include ten on that too, but. We'll just say eight and nine for now. okay. So that's the gospel message. and remember where, where did we how did we get launched off into that? Because Paul says back in Romans 15 verse 20 that he aspired to preach the gospel. He aspired to preach the gospel. And I do want to share this too real quick. There are three times in the New Testament that Paul uses that word for aspire or he made it his ambition, yours might say. And Paul was the only one to use this word in the New Testament. That word for aspire or to have an ambition for something. And there are three things that he said that he had an ambition for. I just think this is really fascinating and you should copy this, okay? The first is preach the gospel. And we have that right here, don't we, in Romans 15. I'll give you a chance, just in case you want to be very, a very impressive student this morning. Can you think of any of the other places where he said this. This would be really impressive. I mean you would like get buku extra credit. No. No. Good good try. The other one is in Second Corinthians five, he says he's made it his ambition to please God in all things. I believe it's verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. And then thirdly, this is to the Thessalonians. He told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to make it their ambition to live a quiet life, to work with their own hands, and to be dependent on no one, just as we instructed you. And so as Paul is instructing them to make that their ambition, you can, of course, easily presume that was his ambition too. So three things. Preach the gospel. Please God. Live quietly. I think that's a great list to copy, don't you? If you're to make your ambition three things in life, that's a good list. Good list of three. Okay? So Paul wanted to preach the gospel And he wanted to preach the gospel in new places. But let me ask a couple questions before we get to the new places part. Um, What happens when someone does believe this message? As we aspire to preach the gospel, we go preach the gospel, we cover this ground with them. What happens if we get to the end and they say, I do believe? What happens to that person? He gets sucked up into heaven. Like those things at the bank, you put the little canister in there. (laughs) 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 What happens?
1: New creation.
0: Yeah, there's something that happens there in that moment, right? Good. The power of God comes upon that person, right? The battle begins. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, the whole new life begins. But that person becomes a new creation. That person is born again in that moment. Though that person looks no different, that person probably sounds no different, that person is just standing right before you. There's no like weird transformation, graphic effect, anything that happens. (laughs) Yeah, there's no glow, right? (laughs) However, at that moment, that person is brand new. And in God's eyes as judge, that person is perfectly innocent once and forevermore. I think that's just amazing. It's a miracle. So Jeremy. Yeah.
1: Going back to your earlier comment, do you have to clean your life up to come to God? How can a sinner that's mucking about in the sewage of this world how do you wash your body clean with sewage water?
0: Yeah. Right. Can't do it. And uh, yeah. so often, people want to try to clean up their lives for their religious system or whatever it may be. And they'll attack things one by one. But the problem is, it's just like, this is, I think Martin Luther made this comparison, maybe it was Augustine. You've got to come to the point where you realize... You can't treat every little individual sore on your skin. A leper doesn't go around saying, treat this sore, then treat this sore, then treat that sore. He has a a disease that's permeated his entire body, and he needs that whole cleansing to take place. And that can't happen with our own efforts, can it? Well, not only did Paul want to preach the gospel, but he wanted to preach the gospel in new places. That's again in verse 20. He wanted to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, So that I would not build on another man's foundation. And he quotes in verse 21, he quotes from Isaiah 52. You can jot that down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 is a good passage uh, for us to look at in conjunction with this. Because Paul quotes directly from that chapter. And I'll read that for us. Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand." All right, so it's verse 15 that Paul is quoting from there. And what you have in this passage in Isaiah is what you have in several passages in Isaiah where you have a first coming prophecy right next to a second coming prophecy. It talks about in this passage, this is a good memory verse, that Jesus' appearance would be marred more than any man. That his form would be marred more than the sons of men. That's first coming. And then in the next verse... It goes on to say he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Well, that hasn't happened yet, has it? (laughs) We've got kings still running their mouths, right? Kings aren't bowing the knee before the king of kings yet. That will happen. It just hasn't happened yet. But what you have here are principles that apply where the gospel is going out. We're now in between the first and second coming and the gospel's going out particularly to the Gentiles. And this is important for Paul, who's a minister to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's saying, this is my primary audience is to reach these people, even kings. I mentioned earlier Felix. And there were other kings that you see in the book of Acts that Paul spoke to. And so Paul had a pretty strong view of the great commission here, didn't he? to go to all the nations, to reach all the world. Paul was pretty serious about that. But there's another lesson that I want us to see here in these first two verses, verses 20 and 21. And that's that our mission field as Christians, those who we reach, that's a a matter of conscience that we have freedom in. Okay. Now, that that sounds like uh, something that you wouldn't easily get from the passage, but it's right there. Paul says that he aspired to preach not where Christ was already named, so he wouldn't build on another man's foundation. Does that mean it is sinful for anybody to go to a place where Christ has already been proclaimed? That we should all, in our evangelism, only go to places where Christ has not yet been made, or been named?
1: No.
0: Right. Because we, we know that people came in after Paul in places, right? A lot of times you'd have Jews coming in after Paul trying to destroy the foundation he just laid. Right. But you also had Christians who would come in and minister to the churches. And that was a matter of conscience for them, a matter of gifting, a matter of God's calling. And it's important for us to recognize that not every Christian is called to this task that that Paul had. And to illustrate that, I want us just to turn a couple pages to the right to 1 Corinthians 3. It's the very next book. Go to chapter 3. And let's look at verses 5 through 10 to hear how Paul described this interaction of different ministries. Would someone read 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 10? Go ahead, Mike. What then? So we've got a couple of metaphors that we're using. I'll be careful not to mix them, but Paul presents a couple of metaphors here. The first is planting and watering, and then in verse ten we have the building uh, metaphor or analogy that he uses again in Romans 15 that we're looking at this morning. And so, thinking about the uh, the building, Paul was a concrete guy, wasn't he? He came to lay a foundation, and I wish Roy was in here so he could tell us all about the hard work of laying a foundation. It's very difficult work. Roy spent his whole career in concrete, and his body has suffered for it. It is very, very difficult. And I think the, uh, the analogy to what we're talking about spiritually, to be a pioneer evangelist, that's very, very difficult too, isn't it? To go to a place where there is no Christian influence and to say, let's get something going. You can think of uh, the pioneers, even in our own country. And trying to get things going in a new place, trying to grow crops. Think all the way back to the pilgrims. They needed Squanto to come along, didn't they? <laughs> to teach them what to do. I mean, it's just very difficult when you're going to new places and you're trying to learn the culture. You're trying to learn uh, the reception that people might have, what kind of religious presuppositions they have to engage those. It's the same as, as pioneers who are coming out. And, and a long time ago in America, I think it was Doug Moo in his commentary who made this, this analogy. A long time ago in America, we were so spaced out that a pioneer knew it was time to move and build a new cabin somewhere else if he could see smoke from another cabin in the distance. <laughs> Man, those days are long gone, aren't they? Uh, <clears throat> and so Paul kind of had the same idea here where, look, I'm not, I'm not going to build on another man's foundation. I'm going to a brand new place. But notice through this passage, he's using Apollos as his example of the one who comes next. And not once does he disparage an Apollos-like ministry of building upon the foundation. And so I think we would do well to consider what part of the process we're gifted for. You think of this as the simple, basic planting and watering that Paul uses here. Paul's working the soil. He's putting the seed in the ground. But he's not doing the watering. Okay, those are two different parts of the process. He gets the ground ready. He drops the seed and he's off to the next place. And he trusts in people who come afterwards to cultivate that plant. And for those of you who have a garden or have gardened for many years, you know that in this respect, it's a lot easier just to throw a seed in the ground. And it's very difficult to get these little seedlings up to the point of bearing fruit. In a lot of ways, when something comes out of the ground, then the work is just beginning, right? Because you can get a nice-looking plant, maybe the first month or two, the plant is looking very healthy. And if you're like me, for some reason, every time you plant tomatoes, you have what's called that blossom end rot, where you get that nasty little spot on your tomatoes. You're thinking, ah, we got the plant up and running. It was all going so good, and now's the time for me to eat the fruit, and it's gross. And for some reason, my peppers have little spots on them, too. And it has to do with soil mixture and all of that. And then you got to go back into the soil and work over some of those foundational elements again. Well, this process has different stages. And not every plant is going to be successful. This is supposed to be a wimpy, wilty-looking plant. All right? So the seed goes in the ground and you water. And, well, God is the one who gives the increase. And sometimes that means a big, strong, healthy plant that will bear fruit. And other times, not so much. Jesus used this analogy too. A sower went out to sow. Matthew 13. A sower went out to sow and he cast the seed. What was the seed in the parable? Yeah, the gospel, the word of God. And he gives the the four different types of ground that received the soil. And only one of those types bore fruit. And even within that type, there's a variation of how much fruit the plant bears. And so this is all up to God. God gives the increase, but we have different stages in this process. And I think you'd do well to really consider how God has gifted you and what God has called you to do. Are you uh, someone who plants a seed? Are you someone who waters? Are you someone who helps prepare the ground? I mean, there are different parts of the whole process. Where do you fit in with that? Because this is God's church that He's building, and He's given us different roles in the process. And when we think about our mission field, I know that I'm not cut out to be a pioneer evangelist, a pioneer missionary. I'm not called to go to some back jungle in Bangladesh and go do that. That's not for me. I've got zero desire. But I have a ton of desire to be right here.
1: You're in Utah.
0: That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a different place. And so our mission field is a matter of conscience based on God's personal conviction in our hearts. Okay? Thoughts on all that? What or do you questions.
1: Water, don't you think watering is more like a for that? Yeah,
0: it's discipleship, yeah. yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you
1: know, you've got squash bugs, but you're going to take out part of the plant. You've got to
0: have some of the job. Yes. Sure. Squash bugs slash wolves. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Good. Good. Good job. So that's
1: speaking in the, the grand scheme of things. Looking at, uh they like said, do I want to be a, a pioneer evangelist or I want to Going to an established area and teach. But uh, even while you're saying you don't consider yourself a pioneer and you want to uh, disciple people important, to people who have already been established, you still recognize that you have a calling to evangelize. So that uh, doesn't mean yeah. your responsibility to
0: yes. share the truth. And a great example of that is Timothy, right? where Timothy was technically watering what Paul had planted. Timothy's there in Ephesus. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus establishing that church. And there Timothy is a pastor. And Paul writes to Timothy as the pastor who's watering and says, do the work of an evangelist. So it's still every Christian's responsibility to share the good news. Okay? Um, but we'll have a primary focus perhaps in... In other areas, but when you leave the gathered fellowship, you are an ambassador for Christ wherever you go, and you take Christ with you. Okay, Melissa. Yeah, I know. I live with you. That weren't real; they were embellished, and she wouldn't do that. Um, And I, I just think it's helpful to remember that those those stories do happen—really cool stories where like something big happens and something transformative. But a lot of times, faithfulness is just hard. Yep. You don't see a lot of results, but God is the one that works. Oliver Wilde—is that a name? Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde. That's a name, right? He said, uh, I just saw this this morning, so I I think it was him. Uh, He said, uh, when you tell someone the truth, make them laugh, otherwise you'll make them depressed. So Amy Carmichael should have added a few more jokes in her letters. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, I can't believe we only have 15 minutes left. Uh, Let's wrap this up, uh, verses 22 to 24 of Romans 15. Because not only did Paul desire to reach the unreached, which we saw in 20 and 21, but we see that he also desired to finally see the Romans. He had not seen the Romans yet. And it was his own ministry strategy, his own mission field, his own conviction that had prevented him from joining in Roman fellowship. You see in verse 22, he says, for this reason, that's everything we were just talking about. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. We see here a basic principle. All of life is competing priorities, isn't it? All of life is just trying to figure out what your priorities are. And if if you've lived any amount of life, you know that saying yes to one thing means saying no to other things, right? And here in Paul's ministry, he had been saying no to seeing the Romans because his priority was to reach those who had not been reached. And I want us to consider just for a moment, I was going to spend longer on this, but just be a moment, three ways according to Scripture that we are hindered in our plans. There are three ways according to Scripture that we are hindered in our plans. Now the first one is actually our own plans. That's what we see here. (laughs) And that's probably the most common. Our own plans that God allows prevent us from our other plans that we want to to take place. Our own plans prevent our other plans. And that's what we see here. That Roman fellowship was prevented because Paul was uh, seeking to be a missionary elsewhere. But can you think of the two other reasons that Scripture gives to what foils our plans Okay, the Holy Spirit actually will prevent certain plans from happening. And I think this is extremely relevant because what are we talking about here? But missionary life, right? And in the book of Acts, we see this in a couple places. You can jot these down if if you want to check them out later. Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. And then also Acts 20, verse 22. In both of these cases, you have Luke the author of Acts, saying that the apostles' plans were hindered because of God himself. And then there's one more reason that the scriptures give as to why our plans get hindered. Can you think of what that other plan is? Satan, Satan himself. That's First Thessalonians 2.18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. So you've got our own plans that God allows, God bypassing all of our plans and just putting up roadblocks, and then you have Satan being allowed by God to put up his own roadblocks. Now, I, I just think that's pretty interesting as we consider why aren't we getting done the things we want to get done? Well, there are three reasons for that. Okay, I think 99% of the time it's that first reason. Why aren't we growing in our spiritual life? Well, 99% of the time, it's because we have priorities that have taken the place of our other priorities that should be the priority. But there are times, of course, where Satan will hinder that. You know, why haven't we been able to go see somebody we've been wanting to see? Well, maybe God is just not allowing it at this time. He's closing that door. Okay, uh, that's just a real basic look at the ways our plans get hindered. But now we see it was time for Paul to make it to Rome. You see, verse 23 says, But now, this is a contrast, But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints." Well, Paul had seen uh, no further option, or sorry, no further uh, opportunity of open doors where he was. Last week we looked. He said, "From Jerusalem to Elichrim, I've covered every every place I've had an opportunity, but now this region has been kind of tapped out. It's time to go somewhere else." And Paul was always looking for an open door. He asked the Colossians and Colossians four to pray for him that there would be an open door for the word, and he sees no. No open door anymore. And Spain was the next place that he had on his radar. He was going to go to Spain. Now what's interesting is we don't know if he ever made it to Spain. This is, I think, the only place that we have in the New Testament where it says that he was wanting to go to Spain. And we don't know if he made it. Uh, It's actually possible if you go back, uh, did I put his name down? Yeah. It was uh, the church father Clement of Rome. And he's way back there. I mean, he's back in the second century. In his commentary, he said that Paul did make it, and he gave an account of Paul being in Spain. But it's one of those questions you'll have to wait till heaven to find out the answer to. That would be kind of a fun one to ask Paul, wouldn't it? Did you make it to Spain? What happened? Ah. That would be cool. Uh, So we'll have to wait till then. But he wanted to go to Spain, and on his way he wanted to see the Romans and receive some of their help. But before all of that, verse 25 says he had to go to Jerusalem to deliver the gift from the Gentiles. He had been raising support from Gentile churches to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he was finally going back to deliver that gift. There was a famine that was going on in Jerusalem at that time. Many of the Jewish Christians were suffering through the famine. And this was a way for the Gentiles to show their unity, to show their love for their Jewish brothers and sisters who had also converted to Christianity by sending them support. It was a way for those Gentile churches to bridge the relationship gap they had with the Jews. And next week, Tyler will look into that some more. But eventually, Paul did make it to Rome. And I want us to look at that. So turn back to the book of Acts. Just, again, a few pages to your left. Acts 28 Verses 14 and 15, the last chapter of Acts, about the middle of the chapter, we see Paul did arrive in Rome. This surely isn't what he envisioned when he wrote to them. You know, he was writing as like he, he's gonna be a free man. He's gonna do whatever he wanted to do among the, the Roman believers, and you know, he'll stay for a while here, he'll enjoy their company there, he'll get their support, and off he'll go. But here we see Paul arriving in Rome, and Paul, of course, has been uh, under watch. He's been in custody. And let's read verses 14 and 15. Who's got that? Acts 28,
1: 14 and 15. Got it. Okay. There we found some brethren, and we invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they had heard us, heard about us, came from there as far as the market of the pious and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and
0: took courage. All right. So lots of things have happened in Paul's life since he wrote that letter to the Romans and then had this event happen. You you know your Bible's not in chronological order, right? (laughs) So even though we were ahead of this in the book uh, of the Bible, even though we're going backwards to this, this is yet future when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And he says to them uh, that he wanted to see them, and here he is seeing them. This is where he had that Roman fellowship. But again, certainly the circumstances were different than Paul had imagined. Yet he was still free enough to be able to go see them. He was free enough to be able to relax to a degree and receive encouragement from them and enjoy their fellowship. So there's your fulfillment of his desire to get to Rome, but we just don't know uh, if he made it to, to Spain. Okay? And that concludes what I have for you this morning. So any... Final thoughts or questions on this passage?
1: So yes. You have the Bible not being written in chronological order. Uh, in Colossians, which was written in this, a lot of people stumble over uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 23, where Paul says that the gospel has been preached in all the world. Mm-hmm. And then yet here later, in Romans 15, saying, well, I still want to go to Spain. So we shouldn't understand that as the work is finished, the work is done. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, if uh, we're understanding, you know, world there literally, uh, the reality is Paul didn't even know what the world looked like, right? Uh, yeah. Hmm.
1: He was speaking of the method in which the preaching was to go forward. Yeah, right. Or the gospel, rather, through preaching.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. Very good. If you have any other questions about Romans, you can refer to any of these books in my library. <laughs> Some of them are, are quicker reads than others, but uh, we do have special guests with us this morning. Sam and Abby Zander are sitting back there by my wife. Say hi to them. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> We're very friendly. <clears throat> so uh, glad to have them with us. Uh, they just are just moving here from Western Nebraska. Poor people living in Western Nebraska. <laughs> Welcome here, much better. And uh, yeah, they were uh, at the church of a friend of mine I went to school with, and uh, they they were there two years or so. But uh, of course, you guys know Sam's parents are the station managers for Key Radio, and um, they're from Wisconsin originally, and you'll hear that accent when Sam talks. And Abby is from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan originally, so yeah. A lot to learn and discover with uh, getting to know them. Uh, just so you guys know, I mentioned this to you on the phone yesterday, Sam. This is uh, a really depleted force that we have today. Uh, this is about half of what we normally have in here. Lots of people are dealing with things. yeah Sick or traveling or both. So, yeah. Yep. But Okay, very well. Uh, Joseph, you want to close us in prayer and pray for the service? Yeah. Uh, Father God, thank you for uh, today and uh, the lesson. And, uh, yeah, just the, uh, so much things we get out of Romans. Uh, yeah, the stories we hear about Paul and his testimony and his um, desire to uh, preach the gospel, to go to many places and just, just a desire so many open doors. And I pray that uh, we could have more of that uh, spirit and mind and uh, yeah, pray for the service that we will have later, and that will go well, will be fruitful, and
1: administer all of us. In His name, Amen. 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 Very good.